Hi and welcome to Elsie's Mundo uh, Book Club podcast. Hello everyone. Today my guest is Aya. Hello Aya. Can you hear us? Hello. Yes, I can. Good. Um, can you introduce yourself a little bit, please? Of course. So, um, as Elsa said, my name is Aya. I am a PhD student in Edinburgh, but I myself am originally from Finland. I've been abroad, so an expat over 21 years at this point. So, um, but I do do still try to get my hands on Finnish literature as much as possible, mainly just to keep up with my own language as well, um, and to to be able to promote a little bit of foreign language reading and literature. Finland publishes about a um, hundred books per person. And we have a, a population of 5.4 million. Um, so they publish a lot of books, but a very only one, about 1% of all the books published in Finland ever get translated. So I would like today to take a small opportunity to talk about a Finnish book and author, especially. Wonderful, which book is that? So I'm speaking with, of the book called Vainola, which was written by Baivi Alasalmi. She's written multiple books. Uh, Vainola is one of her earlier books, and it was originally published in 1996. Um, I read this book when I was doing my bachelor studies in Salzburg, Austria, because I was looking for a topic to write my thesis on. And I had recently come across Jean Rees, who was a Caribbean author. And obviously, as a literature student, we read um, things like Bronte Sisters books. And Jane Eyre was one of my favorite books of all time. So what this book actually does is combines White Star Castle Sea, which is from Jean Rees, and Jane Eyre from the Bronte and kind of brings them together in a Finnish landscape and mansion. So she combines literature, history and so on. And then all of these Gothic experiences happen and the main protagonist kind of feels she's almost losing her mind over this. Um, so it, it's very much about that oh, wow. trope of okay. mad woman in the attic. Interesting. What caught you in this book? Exactly. Because of my want of finding a topic, I wanted to write my thesis on the trope of mad woman in the attic. Mm. So, but ultimately, obviously, because it didn't finish and I was doing my bachelor in Austria. So I ended up wanting to translate the book in English and to be able to then discuss it properly with my professors and so on. And I got in touch with the author and we've since become very good friends, um, luckily lucky for me, fangirl moment. And I've translated the book in English. It's never been published. It was translated for this project alone. And so I just love the landscape, the, the dark Gothicness of it, but it's in the Finnish landscape, which is not what a lot of people would associate as Gothic either. So, and it's combining two of my favorite books into a whole new book and a whole new story. Wow, that's very interesting. My second question was going to be like, all right, how can I read this book? 
So I guess it's not available. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, it's not been um, officially translated or um, it's not been published in English. It is something that the author would like to do. And she has been very kindly promoting me and the translation whenever she can. But there just hasn't been that much of a she's not very well known outside of Finland. She's very well known in Finland as an author. She's just had a new book come out um, this month which is already going into second print. So she's very well known in Finland and her style is very distinctive. But uh, she's been translated only into French and I think it was either Lithuanian or Polish. I can't remember anymore, but she's very, very limitedly translated, unfortunately, and none of her work have been translated into English yet. Wow. Why do you think the reason for that is? I think a lot of Finnish authors will have the same experience. It is such a weird little country. I mean, it's a, it's a mm. big country, but it's very unique. The language is nothing like any other language. The people in Finland are very distinctively different. They So they don't share cultural or linguistic roots and history. So like you have all the romantic languages, they mm. share cultural histories and ties and linguistically as well as otherwise, same with Germanics and so on. But Finland is so distinct and it's so far away that people don't really associate themselves with that experience. So they have a mm. hard time imagining the, the language, the names, for example, just the author's name is Baivi Alasalmi, which for me is easy to say, obviously, but it wouldn't be for someone else. So when you can't imagine something, it's very hard to kind of associate yourself and go with the story because a lot of people internationally will know about France and they can read about French Alps and things like that and imagine them in their minds. But if you talk about something like Lapland and the landscape in Lapland, a lot of people can't imagine that. So they can't feel like they're part of the story. Yeah, you're right. That's an interesting point of view anyway. I was smiling when you mentioned that um, Finland is a weird country, different traditions, different language, no other like language is related to it. And I feel pretty much the same as a Hungarian, I must say. We are, <laughs> you know, we are also like a unique nation. In, yeah, so in officially, sense. actually, they put us in the same group, don't they? We are, yes. our languages are known as the Finno-Ugrian languages. Exactly. And that only exactly. includes three languages. That includes Hungarian, Finnish and Estonian. Yes, yes. Um, um, so no, so no strange, other people can really associate. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, the strangers. But that's okay. I'm okay with that. Um, <laughs> it makes us unique. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Are Estonian and Finnish related though? It's, it's as much as um, Hungarian and Finnish. I mean, Finnish and Estonian are closer together linguistically than Hungarian and Finnish, but they are still two different languages. Mm. But we we are geographically closer already, so our languages have evolved to be more similar. But there's always one example I remember, because the Estonian word for milk is bima. I don't probably pronounce it correctly, but that's what it is. But bima in Finnish is sour milk. Oh, wow. So mm -hmm. uh, even though it's basically the same word, it has a completely different meaning. So that makes Estonian quite difficult for Finns as well. But there are some words that are look the same and sound the same, but mean completely different things. Or some words that 
you know, sound the same and look the same are the same. So yes. it, it, it is quite interesting. Uh, my stepmother and my father both do speak Russian and they speak some es Estonian as well. So it's always been interesting to hear it around the family as well. Oh, wow. Interesting. Thank you for sharing. Can you share some bits of the plot of the book, please? Yes. So it's a young woman who is a literary student. She's working on her dissertation, her PhD dissertation. She's working on Jean Rees. So this is where that comes into the question. She's especially focusing on the book White Sarcasso Sea. And those who don't know, White Sarcasso Sea was written you know, decades after uh, Bronte's Jane Eyre, and it was written to give life and a personality to Bertha, who is the wife in Jane Eyre, who's been locked into the attic. Uh, in Jane Eyre, Bertha is portrayed as a madwoman, and she burns, you know, the, the estate and so on. Um, so as a Caribbean female author, Jean Rhys felt very strongly that this was a stereotypical and an evil portrayal of what Caribbeans are like. So she wrote a white sarcasm sarcasm to give life to Bertha, renamed her Antoinette, and wrote how she became that woman. So the protagonist in my book, in Vinola, she kind of is researching that and is researching literature and writing her dissertation. And then she meets and marries an older man, mm -hmm. uh, a very wealthy man. And they move to his estate, his mansion in in a small town, middle of nowhere, Finland. And she basically becomes a full time wife and, and a researcher. So she because she now has access to all the, his wealth and he travels a lot for work. And so she is left alone a lot at the big mansion. And then slowly things start happening that are known as cossack like she feels that there is something evil in the mansion she feels a presence she sees and hears things that cannot be and that slowly kind of starts affecting her mentality and her personality and she feels she's going insane mm -hmm. and ultimately this leads to very drastic actions oh wow it sounds scary though <laughs> It, it is. It has very. It, she has the author has an excellent quality and talent to get under your skin. Mm. She's written multiple books in the same vein, and most of her books are like this. Um, and they get under your skin without you even realizing. And I think that's a very good quality in gothic novels in general because it's not outright horror. It's the building of a feeling, and she does it really well. Um, you you get the same in Jane Eyre as well. You know, you get the building of. Um, Jane Eyre marrying, becoming the governess or the teacher in this family, and then things happen and slowly she, you know, it's building up that tension um, that is very vital for Gothic literature. So I find that she does it really, really well. Um, which character was close to you in this book or which character can you relate yourself to? Oh, definitely the protagonist, mainly also because I'm a literary student myself and I'm currently doing my PhD. So I and when I read the book, um, I was in my bachelor studies and I was doing literature. So I did identify with that a lot. And I was in this very big stage of reading a lot of Gothic literature because we were studying 
the Prunty sisters and we were studying Jane, a Jane Austen and all of these things in school at the time at university. And I never liked Jane Austen, unfortunately. I tried, but I never really? ever liked her. Okay. I find I found her, like, I understand her importance to literary history and culture because she was ahead of her era in so many ways. She's vitally important in, in feminist and female literatures. However, I found her, her own era's chick flick mm -hmm. um, as a style. So it wasn't my style. I didn't, I did not enjoy her style as a, as a writer and a reader, but I understand her vitality, mm -hmm. but for me, Bronte sisters, the dark one, like Wuthering Heights, Jane Eyre, all of these things, they, they felt more natural for me to mm -hmm. read. And I felt more enjoying from them. And that's what happened when I found this author by Viola Salmi. And I found a lot of her, especially early books are quite sinister and gothic and even violent at times. Mm. Um, she's written a lot of different things. She did this beautiful three book series on history of Lapland and the original people of Lapland, the Sami people, mm -hmm. which is a beautiful story of a family and the evolving times. And it goes back centuries and then built it towards our current times. So that's another interesting series to, to keep an eye on. If she ever gets that translated, it would be fantastic. Or, but it's the or kind of, other people it's... should learn Finnish and read oh, it yeah. originally. <laughs> that's, that's the other case. Never forget that as well. Yeah, you know. It's not an easy language to learn. And I feel even as a native speaker, um, having been away so long, obviously that my Finnish is not as strong. I still, I'm 35 years old and I still ask my mom to double check any emails I might have to write in Finnish. I see. And sometimes also like, you know, having lived abroad for a long time, like your mind works already with English words, with English grammar. Oh, absolutely. English is my first language. Um, I, they say um, that the kind of the final stage of becoming fluent in another language is that you start doing un subconscious and unconscious things with that language. So mm -hmm. for example, your dreams or your thoughts, what language does take place. Um, for me, my dreams are in English most of the time and 90% of oh. the time. All my thinking happens in English. Mm -hmm. uh, unless I'm literally in a conversation with a Finnish person, then I switch. But if I'm on my own and I'm thinking something, it happens in English. Yes, familiar feelings to me as well. <laughs> yeah. Just for a moment, let's go back to Jane Austen. Pretty yes. much shocked that you don't like her. Like her. <laughs> I, but I don't know if you knew it. Um, I took a short course online on Jane Austen, but mm -hmm. Charlotte Bronte uh, was thinking exactly the same of her as you are thinking about <laughs> her. That you know, she was like um, that time she got popular very easily, and and she got, she got like white popularity suddenly and and these female writers other female writers were also like uh, exchanging letters among each other and during this course there was like an extract from from one of the bronte sisters i'm not even sure if it was charlotte but like one of the bronte sisters letter that oh yeah i've heard about this lady but like you know her her writing is superfluous preposterous and whatever not real like basically <laughs> what you just said i find it funny yeah. yeah, I mean, I get that reaction a lot from people because it's not something people really expect to hear. 
yeah. because of how popular Jane Austen has been. And Jane Austen has been made even more popular with the numerous exactly. um, film adaptations that mm -hmm. I think the latest one of Emma came out just last year, yes. 2020. You know, so she's still current and people still know her. All generations will have heard or know or have read or seen Jane Austen films, you know, so mm -hmm. she's very much there, whereas the Bronte sisters are not quite actively popular anymore. There's only a handful of adaptations done. I, I know Jane Eyre gets a lot of a reputation. She's the kind of the most well-known and adaptable. Mm -hmm. um, she, I think 2017, maybe it was the last adaptation that I know of that it came out as a film for 2018. I, I don't I don't so, know I don't follow, but maybe um, last year around this time during the lockdown I had this um, spree for classics, and uh, I started to read only Jane Austen and only Bronte sisters. Yeah. And of course I started with Jane R. And then after that I moved on to Shirley. And mm -hmm. then there was one more thing, maybe Wuthering Heights. Also I've reread, but I can't. Remember. Have you ever read Thomas Hardy? No, but it's always on my list. <laughs> I never because, seem to get to it. Yeah, if you enjoy those books, like the Brontes and Austin, you would probably like Hardy as well. Like Tess of the Gerbervilles is a, is a fantastic book. It's an absolutely phenomenal book. Um, and it is a Gothic book as well. So um, what, what, what I did in lockdown, it was funny how you said that, because what I did in lockdown was I read a lot of new Gothic. Mm, you know, okay. books written in, within the last exactly. couple of years. That was going to be my my next question. What 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 is gothic? What does this term refer to? Well, the gothic that the the trades are like gloomy surroundings, like big mansions and estates, and in the middle of nowhere, um, sinister happenings. There could be supernatural elements, or it could be um, psychological elements that make things evil or sinister somehow and uh, quite often there's madness involved um a lot of kind of gloomy and darkness mm -hmm. very little joyful so for example uh, edgar and paul would be also yeah. considered gothic yeah okay. and he was very good at kind of manipulating those elements yeah um i mean i i when you read jane austen you would never uh, associate her as as being gothic because she doesn't have those elements her books are quite joyous they are quite colorful they are very you know blithy and and happy and everyone and you know they're, they're more about the, the kind of upper classes uh, wild well and well yeah mm -hmm. exactly uh there and and their, their troubles in those books are not very huge you know they're more societal problems it, it's society books um Whereas, obviously, when you look at the Gothics, there's always someone who's had a bad experience, like there's the Durbervilles, there's rape involved, um, things like that, you know. So there's always you know, big problems that affect people in a very big way. You have that in Jane Eyre, where, you know, Jane Eyre comes to teach and then this whole family, mm -hmm. you know, has this big secret of the mad woman in the attic. Yes, her, her whole life was miserable exactly like, you know, from the so, beginning of the book like yes yeah. it's just yeah it's it's a it's a it's not an easy book to read i would say no no i'm reading a really interesting book right now called the asylum 
Okay. Uh, it is in in the Gothic vein, um, and it goes. I, I, it hasn't really fully stated the decade or the year where it when it's happening, but it talks about how um, hypnosis is first becoming a tool in therapy. Mm -hmm. um, so it, I would say that's 1800 something, like late 1800s maybe, mm -hmm. or even early 1900s, because I'm not exactly sure when hypnosis became first on the radar as a tool for therapy. Um, but this book is from Karen Coles. It's a fairly new book. I think it's only come out like last year, this year, sorry, 2021. Okay. And yeah, so it talks about this one particular woman who's in the asylum the book is called the asylum she's in the asylum and then she you know they deal with her psychology things that have happened to her and then the doctor tries to start her therapy through hypnosis to kind of uncover those hidden traumas and issues that are causing her mental state so it's quite an interesting way of kind of as a modern writer someone still writing and bringing these things in but they you know it's it's a fully in classic tradition in that way you know there's this asylums there's this traumas mm -hmm. there's all of these things that you would expect from a classic novel do you mean that like even contemporary writers get their inspiration from the 19th century or from the turn of the century or, or yes. what do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, it's if someone writes in 2020, 2021, a book about these things, you, you, there must be something, you know, there's less books like, you know, Jane Austen nowadays, in my opinion, but you find a lot of modern Gothic novels. Or maybe it's just how I find literature. I don't look at these things, you know, in the same way as Jane Austen. So I don't look for them. But you know, they, they, it, I don't know where they get the inspiration from. But mm -hmm. it is evident that they 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 must have read similar yes. literatures before, and that's kind of they yes. like it, or they they come across a new story, or they come across a concept because I, I used to work with a lot of writers and, and authors and they just say that sometimes their inspiration can come from just one sentence or that's very true I can relate you to know that a, or a scene yes. in, a, in a film that they're watching exactly. or a tv show or and that just... sort of sparks something mm -hmm. and they end up in a kind of a rabbit hole investigating and researching and then it just builds and builds and builds because um, one of my favorite authors at the moment is is a modern writer. She her name is Stacy Halls, and she's done quite a few of these kind of modern Gothic novels as well. And she just she's quite open on social media and so on. And she talks about her process of writing, which is quite interesting to see. And she she goes on location on these places when she's doing her research and she writes there and and you know she she immerses herself in that process fully and not just not just using a computer for research but actually going and staying on location while she's writing oh wow that's interesting uh, my other guess would be also that contemporary writers use a lot of topics from the previous centuries because it's really i find it challenging i think it's really hard to make up a story that should be gothic and have all of these 
elements from the past in it with smartphones in it or with with modern technology in it so it's always yeah. easier to you know go back a little bit to like the pre-technological or pre-industrial uh, era so that um that has more inspiration in a way yeah i mean do you know the tv show the crown or have you heard of no. the TV show The Crown? Um, so basically, that is a current TV show that is happening, and it's about the royal family, uh, Queen Elizabeth's family, and it tells the story of Queen Elizabeth's reign as the current queen from before she became a queen all the way up till more recent. The thing, the author or the the scriptwriter, the the person who's responsible of the series plotlines who writes it. He says he's going to cut the story off before Prince Harry and Meghan get together because that's too current. Not enough time has passed to give us all a perspective. And I think that's why a lot of authors are drawn into historical events and eras because enough time has passed there. They have an access to things for research materials and so on that a lot of modern things don't allow. Yeah, that's that sounds about right. Thank you for your perspective. Now let's go back to your original book, please, because after yep. that I will have plenty of other questions too. <laughs> you mentioned that you translated it. Yes. What was the process of the translation like? Like how Slow. do you start and did you use any techniques uh, and special techniques? Or... Um, translating literally, you know, straightforwardly is quite easy because it's just, you know, if you speak, you have to be fluent in the language you're translating in to be able to do that. That's why most working translators, they translate laid from a foreign language to their mother language because they are more fluent in their mother language than they are mm -hmm, sure. in their reading language. Whereas obviously for me, I've done it, the, so to speak, wrong way around because I translated it from my mother language into English. But and my English now is much, much better than it was then. So I first translated this book in 2011 or started it in 2011. So that's a 10 years ago. But what were the trickiest processes and what took me the longest and ended up in a lot of conversations with people is idioms and, and metaphors and things like that, you know, colloquialisms, things mm -hmm. that we say um, that, that kind of put an imagery on and it's, it's not a literal meaning or a literal, you can't translate those things literally, literally because they mean something else in Finnish. Like, you know, uh, sure. I'm trying to think of an example right now of an idiom that everyone would know, and then how you would say that in your own language. Because I, I swear, what I would say in Finnish and what you would say in Hungarian would be very, very different than what it would be in English. True. So, for example, in English, you say um, it's raining cats and dogs, mm -hmm. right? How would you say that? You have a similar one, I'm sure, in, in Hungarian, but it's not going to be cats and dogs. No, it's going to be, it's raining as if it was poured from the bucket. 
Exactly. And in Finnish, we we say it a lot worse. We say it's raining like Esther is a female name in Finland. It's raining as from Esther's ass. So that's not a very lovely way to say things. But, um, you know, you can't. That's why if, if someone says that in Finnish, I have to find a correct equivalent in the other language. So I can't translate that literally. I can't just literally say if it's raining from Esther's ass, I can't translate that into English because English would not know what it means. So I have to say it's raining like cats and dogs. Sure. So that changes the process very mm-hmm. much because um, the phrases are comp- sometimes completely different, but they have they retain the original meaning, but the words are completely different. Yes, if you know what I mean. Yes, absolutely. So it's for me. Yeah, it, for me, it's mm-hmm. always different uh, to read something in English and to read something in Spanish, um, and because the taste of the book, the taste of the story is just different too with the translation. Yes, absolutely. And it's the same with specialist words, you know, in in the book um, or or like slang words or vernacular words, words, uh, words. Uh, This protagonist in the book, for example, she's getting a massage at one point and the massage person is talking about Gilliam Silamad which are like these little knots of nerve and muscle that are bundled up in your, in her back. Mm-hmm. So that, that's one word in Finnish, Gillian Silamat, and it's a very much a colloquial word. So it is natural for that region in Finland, but you, you wouldn't say that same word in Helsinki, for example, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's again, like, how do you translate that? Do you find a dialect of English? or maybe Scottish or maybe Irish to find a nice colloquial word to put in. And how will that change the tone and the style of the book? Because, or when people are having conversation, you know, people don't have conversation in the same way as they write, because that's vernacular. You're talking in vernacular, whereas you're writing in, so to speak, more, more refined way. So that's also how do you follow a dialogue in translation to be loyal to the regionals? Yeah, I agree. So mm-hmm. yeah, it, it is a long process because of that. Okay. And you have to then talk to different language experts or regional experts to kind of find um, ways. And obviously for me, the process was much longer, mainly because I'm not a, a professional translator. I was doing it this for my own purposes. I wasn't doing it for publication. Okay. Um, what was your purpose with that? Like for the supervisors also to understand and get a glimpse of the story or? Exactly. So if I wanted to write my book, my thesis discussing these three books, which is Jane Eyre, White Sarcasso, C and Vinola, um, they would, would might want to know the book to be able to assess the qualities of it um, in my thesis. So I thought if I, and then obviously if I, then I would need to have passages quoted in my arguments and in my thesis. So that was the process. I was supposed to just translate some phrases, and uh, but then I just found that it was easier to have the whole book translated oh, wow. to be able to refer back to it. And luckily, the author was very forthcoming with her with it. So I went to see her and went to interview her, and we're still in contact now. And she's she's a wonderful person. So. Um, it worked out for me very well, but uh, yeah, um, 
there are very strict rules in publishing. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. um, and people really don't like amateurs trying to publish anything. Because sure. I, for my, for my first master thesis, I did publishing and um, I was studying publishing. So I have my first master's degree is in publishing studies. And I wrote about Finnish literature in translation in Anglophone countries. So US and UK. And I interviewed a lot of translators for this. And Finnish is such a rare language. Yeah. There's only a handful of professional translators and they're very competitive, obviously, because there's so few of them. So yeah, they, they find it incredibly insulting if someone who's not a professional accredited translator is trying to get something published because that's literally taking jobs away from them because, mm -hmm. because it's such a small field because Finnish being such a rare language. Yeah. Yes. Yes, I agree. And it's, it must be a tough market for it as well. Exactly. Um, Only about 1% of Finnish literature gets translated in English, like I said earlier. So yeah. it is a very small amount. Yes. And it's sad. I wish, I wish there would be more, you know, literature available in English from Finland. There is this quote from Kafka that normally I characterize myself with, I am nothing but literature and can and want to be nothing else. It feels like true somehow about you as well. Like you breathe and you leave literature. Uh, how, how did you start with um, getting your interest in it and getting your interest in reading and such? This is 100% because of my parents. My both of my parents are ferocious readers, always have been. Um, they constantly have a book on um, and uh, my mom started reading to me and my brother before we were even born. So she would read to her baby bump while we were still inside her belly. So, and the first book she ever read to me was Winnie the Pooh when I was about a one week old, she says. Wow. So she was reading out loud to me ever since I was a baby. And the last book she ever read out loud to me and my brother was when my brother was 15 and I was 13 years old. Uh, the book was Silmarillion from mm -hmm. Tolkien. So the older we got, the more complicated and demanded the books got. But we always enjoyed the reading, the, the moments of listening and reading. And so she, she very much, my mom very much fosters this love for us. And they've always been a good example of it. And my brother does that with his own children. He reads to them or he read to them when they were little. They're not too big to listen anymore. But when they were little, they would always read. And we, we always found it, it's a bonding moment. It's a learning moment. And it fosters that intelligence and language growth and all of that. So I can, I can see the benefits. And I know all of my friends who have children, they read to their children actively and their children start reading on their own very young and they start writing very young because they've always had that kind of example and inspiration shown at home. So yeah, I definitely 100% credit my, my parents, especially my mother with all of that. Mm. Okay. And, um, what was the first book that you read by yourself or? I probably can't remember, um, completely. I knew when I was about, you know, nine, 10 years old, I liked the Little Miss Detective books. Mm -hmm. When I was little, um, there were a couple series that I would read, but they are, you know, very much finished, so you wouldn't know them. Mm -hmm. um, but 
I started reading things like Jane Eyre. Uh, one, of, one of the first books I remember absolutely loving, and what my family considered me very strange for, is The Count of Monte Cristo. Okay. And I was very young when I read that. I was about 11 years old, I think, when I first read that. And it was my absolute favorite book ever at that time. And I read it multiple times. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Already about the mysterious stories on a very, <laughs> from a very early age. Yeah. And I always, I, I don't know, I, I absolutely loved The Count of Monte Cristo. And I, then I read a lot of similar books. And I read The Three Musketeers as well. I didn't like Three Musketeers as much, but I read that as well because it kind of did. I read Papillon and mm. a lot of these books. Um, but yeah, Count of Monte Cristo still to this day feels, you know, really like returning home, you know, because there's yeah. always, I think a lot of people who are literary, you know, people, they have favorite books they go back to. And read again Absolutely. and again every couple Absolutely. of years. I one of mine is that. Jonathan Hart's uh, The Secret History. And mm -hmm. it's one of those books I've read multiple times. Okay. Thank you for sharing. What are you studying now or what are you working now? So I am a literary student. I'm on my third year, of, no, fourth year PhD now. Oh, cheers. Um, I'm very specialized. I actually am, my research is on. African American women writers and the counter literary relationship with the FBI. With the so, FBI? Uh, wow. With the FBI, yeah, exactly. So I'm basically researching how, especially J. Edgar Hoover's era as the director of the FBI mm -hmm. impacted and kind of had a relationship with Black writers. And how that has continued to this day, because Hoover had anyone he considered out of the norm or suspicious, he would have them followed and mm -hmm. investigated and harassed, um, black, white, female, male alike. But he had a particular interest in black literature and culture, mainly because he considered them being so influential obviously because during his era there was segregation there were jim crow laws there was all the racism was on the surface in a very different way than after the civil rights movement mm -hmm. so j edgar hoover became the director in 1924 so that was when he was a very young man and he remained the director until his death which was 1972 so that's 48 years of him leading one of the most powerful police forces ever anywhere and he had a, a massive reach and, and authority he was more feared than and more you know he was in control even above the president it was never officially you know admitted but he was because he knew the wow. secrets of everyone yeah and he considered he was obviously raised and grew up as a racist, he grew up in the South. He grew up believing American black people are servient and, and you know, they're less than the white people. Yeah. That's how what he believed, and that's what he took into his work, and that's where a lot of this came from. Um, but obviously, then when we're progressing over 1920s and 30s, you have Harlem Renaissance, which meant um, black music and literature, culture, arts. They were in favor everyone loved it everyone wanted a part of it after that we are coming to the world war ii era where 
uh, even African Americans who served in the war did when they returned, they did not get the same benefits, they did not get the same treatment, the heroic treatment, like all the white American soldiers who returned and all the white American soldiers would get, you know, loans and subsidiaries to help them reestablish their lives after war, whereas the black didn't. So that leads up to towards the 1950s and civil rights movement taking hold, um, and which obviously um, led to a lot of violence and aggression in America. Mm -hmm. um, and it led to a lot of structural racism in a very new way as well. You, you can see it in the policing. You can see that now and with the Black Lives Matter movement and yeah. all of that. Yeah. And they are addressing these things like um, the prison reform systems, like American prisons and prison system and justice system is is built in a way that it is against those subgroups and those groups that are not the mass main white male. Um, there are a lot more black people in prison for same crimes as whites have committed, but have never gotten prison terms for, for example, you know, it's just a one very sure. tiny, small yeah. example, mm -hmm. um, or educational things or government things, you know, that, that, that structure has been built against them. And that's where a lot of the movements come. So I'm, I'm looking in my studies about women, women writers and how they influenced American consciousness, international consciousness, how they took on the federal justice the federal systems that were against them and how they brought this out in their literature and how that then triggered and impacted fbi and their wow. fbi's um, activities wow it seems to be like such a specific topic but like you know at the end of it it's really broad and wow i would love it, to I, I would love to read some some of your findings <laughs> or some yeah, I'm, I am hoping once I'm finished with it all that um, I will find a publisher for it. Mm -hmm. Similar book, not not the same, but a similar book came out 2015 from a professor called William J. Maxwell. He published a book on uh, FBI and black writers, but he basically focused mainly on only on the men. Um, and I have had another professor tell me that they focused mainly on the men because there was not as much information about women out there and that women were not as interesting. Mm -hmm. And obviously as a researcher and as a female researcher, I took offense to that. So my whole premise of my thesis is basically saying women are interesting, women of yes. color are very important and there is yes. a lot of information out there if you know where to look and if you know to ask the right questions. Sure, this is also why like, you know, history gets a little bit one-sided yeah exactly one-sided thank you um yeah. this is also why history gets one-sided because it was always from the male and always from the white male's perspective and now people tend to be more conscious about that well you could see history well history in the making and and things are changing slowly but they are changing. For example, the Black Lives Matter movement, as we know it now, was started by women, black women. So it is important to understand that women are at the source of a lot of things, black and white women alike. If you look in history, because my previous degree, my second master's is in, in literature and I specialize in slavery literature. So literature written by 
are the current or former slaves of the time. Um, so it is important to understand that women and women of color have been at the root of these changes from the very early on. So obviously, I'm very much an Americanist in my studies, so it, 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 I'm not talking about everything everywhere. Mm -hmm. But uh, in the US history of of history, of culture, politics, everything, women are at the very core of a lot of it. Uh, but they are because of uh, white chauvinist mm -hmm. propaganda and culture that is perpetuated, you know, they, they get ignored, they get forgotten, they get diminished. And yeah. uh, that's exactly why I think what I do and, and other people who are doing similar work, it, it is important because that is fixing the record of history to reflect what it truly is, not just what we've been told that it is. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. And wow, I just feel like that my pile of to be read has just <laughs> grown up <laughs> after this, you know, after this talk with you. Oh, I have... yeah, absolutely. So if you're looking for, for from from what I study, I can recommend you obviously to read um, people like Eslanda Kid Robson, um, Claudia Jones, she was a journalist um, who wrote quite extensively about what was happening in America at mm -hmm. her time. Um, Angela Davis, who's still very much alive and kicking, has written extensively as well. So this is all nonfiction, basically. They, they were essays, they were journalists, they were activists. Uh, but then you have your fiction writers and your playwrights like Lorraine Hansberry, who was very inspirational and who died very young. Unfortunately, she died at only 36 years old. Um, so her play A Raisin in the Sun is definitely worth to read, to understand um, the experience from, from one family's perspective, what was happening in the world at the time for them. Hmm. And then if you're going back in history, I highly recommend people like Sojourner Truth. Um, she was an illiterate black activist uh, and a woman, but she has two versions of her biography written by, uh, um, they're called amanuenses. They were like her secretaries, her friends. They wrote it for her because she was not, you know, she was illiterate herself. But it is, it is still interesting read. It's her words, it's her history. Um, so it's quite interesting to read. So this was in 1800s, you know, so in 19th century. And Frederick Douglass, who's very well known and, and very famous for what he's done. Um, so those are the kind of things that I, I refer to a lot in my own studies and in, in my own experience for people to kind of go and look up because it's very interesting. Thank you for your recommendation. I have two more questions. Uh -huh. um, the first one is you mentioned before that you are regularly in touch with writers contemporary writers i used to be because i used to be involved mm -hmm. in publishing okay um so i'm not anymore but i used to be i used to kind of talk to them a lot about their progress and mm -hmm. process in how to become a writer and how did they go about getting their ideas and so on in finland or in scotland or in, in scotland in Scotland. In Finland, I, I'm only in contact still with, with Guy Viola Salmi, who was the, the person I introduced at the beginning. Mm -hmm. But um, no, no, um, this was all during my studies and after, because my first master's degree is the publishing studies. And I did that in Stirling University. And then um, I did internships with 
taught me a lot of uh, in, involved in publishing companies and uh, authors and so on. So that's where my kind of contacts came from. What is your experience with working with writers, working with publishers? Um, it wasn't for me. It's a business. And that's why I'm not anymore in it, because I am not a business person. Um, I did not enjoy the kind of the nitty gritty that goes behind in, in getting a book done. Uh, you know, I went into publishing very naively thinking, oh, yay, I get to publish all the books I love, but that's not really how it works, unfortunately. You know, you, you have to publish a lot of books you don't like to make money. And uh, it becomes very kind of, it's, it's a business. It, it, it runs like a business. It has to run like a business. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't for me, but I did enjoy talking to the authors, writing about the processes and things like that. Um, I have a friend who started her own publishing company, who's done really well here in Scotland. It's called 404 Inc. I highly recommend everyone um, to kind of look up their, their listings because they do a lot of different kind of books. Um, and they give voice to a lot of marginalized groups as well. So I highly recommend to look up their listings as well. Thank you. And well, it's going to be my last question, but who knows? Um, are you also writing something or um, besides the thesis and besides the publications? I, uh, I am not a, a like a fiction writer. I don't plan to publish fiction or things like that. And it's, it's not something I consider myself to do. I, I don't consider myself a writer. I'm a researcher. Uh, I'm an academic and I enjoy the process of doing that. I enjoy the process of researching and writing and discussing and criticizing. Um, I have written articles and things like that, but not as a, a non-fiction, uh, no. Okay. Interesting. Thank you. You must have had a lot of inspiration though. I feel like, you know, after reading so much and I, I have a very vivid imagination, I would say, because I have a very strong dream world. Um, I, I do dream, like a lot of people don't remember their dreams. I dream basically every night and it's a lot to do with what I see and hear. And I think write, reading so much has allowed me to kind of absorb things in yes. without even realizing it from from short periods of time just mm -hmm. seeing something you know quickly or mm -hmm. hearing a a short piece of conversation i feel that it stays with me and i do, uh, and, and reading does a lot to do with practical skills as well for example my memory is very good i i if i meet a person i will remember their name and face for the rest of my life most likely um, I work in a hotel, so I remember every guest I've ever checked in. Yeah. Uh, I'll remember their face and name. And okay. if they ever come back, I, I am able to kind of say, hey, welcome back. Um, and I, I do find, I mean, obviously I have no proof that this is because of all the reading and researching, but it, it makes sense to me because I read a lot and I have to remember a lot, mm -hmm. especially because of my research. And all of this affects and impacts and builds my ability to kind of retain information, to dissect information and to regurgitate even okay. information. You know, I always feel like I'm teaching someone when I talk about literature because I can go on and on and on and on. And I always feel like I go in tangents and I go into a lecture mode and I try not to do that with my friends too much. Yeah, but it's still lovely. It's, it's very interesting to to talk to you so thank you and it um, helps my own train of 
thought, you know, especially when I'm working on an article to write or read something in my research, if I talk to another person about it, it's like Lego blocks in your head. It's putting things together. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, I agree. Uh, what are you reading currently? Um, I'm reading this, like, I, I think I mentioned it already. I'm reading the book called Asylum. Mm -hmm. And that's about the woman who's being treated with hypnosis in yes. a mental mm -hmm. asylum. And for my research, for my research, I'm currently investigating Angela Davis's works. Okay, that's very. So she's written a lot of books, so okay. I'm reading her articles and her books, and I'm also reading her autobiography that she wrote while she was in prison. So it's quite interesting. Wow, that is really interesting. That really perks my interest as well. It's. I'm a bit, well, how should I put it? I'm a bit surprised that you are only into two books, but I get it because of the time refrain and probably. Yeah, so um, I work full time. I work 40 hours a week. I am currently planning lessons because I'm starting teaching next week. Wow. And I have my own research to do and because my research, my own research and my tutoring tasks is all literature related. Um, and because I work full time, you know, on yeah. my free time, I don't always find reading relaxing because I do it as a work, sure. if you know what I mean. So yes. sometimes, yes. a lot of the times when I come home from work, for example, the last thing I want to do is open a book. Yeah. <laughs> so yes. I watch a series or I watch TV or sometimes I just listen to music and cook. Mm -hmm. um, I love cooking, but um, I think a lot of literary students who are on this level, like at their PhD level, they've had to read a lot of books to get to this point. And yes. they have to continue to read a lot of books when they are at this point to be able mm -hmm. to do their work. Um, and they, a lot of them who I have met have said that reading just for fun is not any more as like an everyday thing. Yeah. yeah, it's still important, but it's not an everyday thing, you know, because you spend so much time reading already. Mm -hmm. So you, you are having a hard time disassociating yourself from what is work reading and what is pleasure reading. Sure. True. So I read when I read for pleasure now, it has to be something that is completely different than what I read for my research. That's why I'm reading these modern Gothic novels now, because that has nothing to do with my study, which means in my brain, in my mind, I'm able to disassociate and just enjoy the book. I'm not reading it with the perspective of potentially getting information or use out of it. I'm reading it just because I, I want to enjoy it. And I have to deliberately make that distinction of reading for pleasure books have to be widely different than what I'm reading for work. Because if I'm reading um, a book from a black author for fun, uh, it's still going to be in the back of my head. How does this relate to all of that other stuff that I have done or will be doing? Can I use this for something? Should I be using this for something, you know? Um, or I, I start reading subtext and, you know, subcontext, trying to, you know, dissect the text and the meaning of it, sure. which I don't do when I'm reading, like, The Asylum, because I'm reading The Asylum just, just for it. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Thank you so much. Uh, would you like to share anything else? 
just recommendations for people to read, read, read and start young because it, it can lead you to very, very interesting places. Like I went from publishing to working in a hotel and now I'm back into literature studies because it took me a long time to figure out that that's where my real passion is. So I guess for all people, it's just like myself, I, I you know, there's no age limit to change your plans or start a new plan. Mm. Thank you so much for accepting my invitation and I hope to see you soon again. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being with us for this month as well and follow Ersasis Mundo. Stay tuned for more book reviews. Bye.